Well, this morning, we will be in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 14 through 17. It is printed in your bulletin, and I'll actually be reading from the New American Standard, Romans eight, fourteen through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, you are our rock, our fortress, our shield, our strength, our bulwark. You are an ever-present help in time of trouble. You are the one and only God, and there is no other. You are our good, and we seek none other. So, Lord, we come this morning to worship you in the reading, the preaching, the hearing of your word. We come to worship our great King. Lord, would you speak to us as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Without a doubt... Amy Carmichael is one of the greatest missionaries in the annals of church history. In 1895, as a single woman, at the age of 33, Amy set sail from Northern Ireland for India. She would stay there for the next 56 years until her death. During Amy's ministry, she was known as the rescuer of India's children because she would rescue children from the darkness of the Indian jungles. Here's how one article describes how Amy began this ministry of rescue and adoption. Since the 6th century in India, little girls, some of them even babies, were dedicated to the Hindu gods and forced to live in Hindu temples. Their parents were taught that giving up their little girls would earn them favor from the gods. In reality, this meant their little girls were groomed to be the slaves of the Brahmin priests. For Amy, it all started when a girl named Prina was given as a gift 
to the gods at the age of seven. Prina was taken from her mother and placed in the care of a temple woman. This woman taught Prina how to sing and dance to make her more desirable to the Hindu priests. Prina was too innocent to understand what it meant to be, quote-unquote, married to the god. She only longed to be back with her mother. So Prina ran away and made the two-day journey back to her mother. But as soon as Prina arrived home, the wicked temple woman caught up with her and demanded her back. While Prina clung to her mother, begging not to be sent away, the woman threatened wrath from the gods. Prina's mother feared the gods, so she unloosed her daughter's clinging arms and returned her to the temple. As a punishment for escaping, Prina's hands were branded with a red-hot iron. But Prina was determined. She escaped again. This time, she was smart enough not to go back to her mother. She escaped to a different town. Providentially, Amy happened to be traveling through that town, and she met Prina the next morning. Prina described her first meeting with Amy. Prina said, Our precious Amai, Amai means true mother in the language Tamil, was having her morning chota. When she saw me, the first thing she did was to put me on her lap and kiss me. I thought, my mother used to put me on her lap and kiss me. Who is this person who kisses me like my mother? From that day, she became my mother, body and soul. At Amy Carmichael's gravesite, where she is buried in India, on her tombstone, it is written, Amai which means true mother. Now, when we hear this moving story of the adopting love of Amy Carmichael, I believe it should remind us of something else. It should remind us of what motivated Amy in the first place. It should remind us of God's great, vast adopting love for us from the slavery of sin. It should remind us of our status as adopted children of God. I can think of perhaps no more pervasive doctrinal error in America today than the belief that all people are God's children. That everybody, whether you're a believer or not a believer, is a child of God. But that is simply not true. The Bible says it's not true. In fact, Jesus says quite the opposite. In John 8, 41, when some unbelievers claim that we have one Father, God, Jesus says in response to them in John 8, 44, you are of your Father, the devil. That's pretty straightforward. Not all people have God as Father. So if not all people are children of God, who is a child of God? Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
John 1, 12 and 13 says, To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Bible says that to be a child of God, you must believe in Jesus Christ. To be a child of God, you must be a Christian. So let's make very clear, right at the outset, right at the beginning, that the right to be called a child of God is reserved for the Christian alone. And it only follows that if only Christians are adopted children of God, then the benefits of adoption are reserved for the Christian alone. And that's what the Apostle Paul is seeking to unpack for us here this morning. Adoption is the main theme of our passage. It comes up over and over again in these verses. Sons of God, verse 14. Adoption as sons, verse 15. Children of God, verse 16. Children and heirs, verse 17. Adoption is mentioned in all four verses. Adoption here is seen as the mountain peak of the greatness of God's love. Adoption is so great that the entire Godhead, the Trinity, is intimately involved in both the reality and the experience of adoption. So in our passage, I'd like us to see four Trinitarian benefits of adoption. Four Trinitarian blessings that come from being an adopted child of God. First, God's adopted children are led by the Spirit. God's adopted children are led by the Spirit. Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Adoption is a work of the Spirit's ministry. We are led by the Spirit. Notice the passive voice. We are being led. The Spirit leads us, we follow. We do not lead the Spirit, we follow the Spirit. The Spirit leads us, and we are led. We are being led. So being led by the Spirit, according to the Apostle, is a mark, a sign, a benefit, a blessing of adoption. The two are equivalent. Only those who are adopted are led by the Spirit. And all those who are led by the Spirit are adopted children of God. All children of God are led by the Spirit. But this begs the question, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does that mean? Well, the answer to this question is found in the little word for at the beginning of verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit. The word for points us backwards to verse 13. Verse 13 gives us the basis and explanation for verse 14. So we can read it like this, Romans 8.13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And on this basis, for, because, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, in verse 13, is explained by, it is parallel to, being led by the Spirit, in verse 14. The phrase, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, is clarified by the phrase, led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit is to kill sin by the Spirit. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit in this verse is not a subjective experience like being led to the right job, being led to the right spouse, being led to the right school. Being led by the Spirit is primarily a matter of objective obedience. All those who are being led by the Spirit kill the deeds of the flesh. All those who are being led by the Spirit kill sin in the flesh. When you kill sin, you are being led by the Spirit. When you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you are being led by the Spirit. The great Puritan John Owen says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, are you killing sin? Or are you courting it? Are you putting sin to death? Or are you playing with it? Are you killing sin, or is sin killing you? It's one or the other. There is no in-between. It's all or nothing. Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded this morning, sin is crouching at the door, seeking to devour you. Will you let it? Or will you kill it? Brethren, the evidence of your sonship is, do you kill sin in your life? Do you put to death the deeds of the flesh in your life? It is true that Christians often struggle with assurance. Assurance of salvation. And do you know when some Christians, not all Christians, but some Christians, struggle to know that they are a child of God? When they live unrepentantly in their sins. There's an unbreakable chain present in these verses, and it goes like this. Killing sin shows that you are led by the Spirit which shows that you are a child of God. Some Christians forfeit the experience, the subjective assurance of adoption, when they fail to follow the Spirit's lead in killing sin in their life. When Christians fail to kill sin, then they forfeit the assurance, not the reality, not the objective truth, but the subjective experience of adoption. So do not let sin 
get in the way of your assurance. Do not let sin get in the way of experiencing God's love. Sin will weigh your heart down so that you cannot sense your adoption. Assurance of adoption cannot come when you are resisting the Spirit or quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit. Assurance of adoption comes when you are killing sin by the Spirit. Secondly, the second Trinitarian benefit of adoption is God's adopted children relate to God as Father. God's adopted children relate to God as Father. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. You say, okay, okay. I understand that the Spirit shows me my sonship by leading me to kill sin in my life. But how does the Spirit lead me to kill sin in my life? Answer, not by fear. Not by fear. The Spirit does not lead us out of fear. The Spirit leads us out of love. This is not an obedience out of fear, but an obedience out of love. Paul says in verse 15, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. Now don't get me wrong. There is a place for godly fear in our Christian walks, but not this kind of fear. Not this kind of fear. This fear refers to the fear that we had before we were Christians. This is a fear of condemnation. The fear of judgment. Before we became Christians, we did have a spirit of slavery leading to fear because we were enslaved to sin. Romans 6.17 says, Before Christ, you were slaves of sin. You couldn't do anything but sin. All that we did is sin. We were enslaved to sin. And we lived in the fear of the wrath of God. The wrath of God terrified us. You were afraid of God, the judge. And rightly so. But be honest with yourself, O Christian. Now that you are in Christ, do you ever have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again? Do you ever think that no matter how much how hard you try to follow God and honor God that in the end, God is out to get you? That God is constantly displeased with you. That he's constantly angry with you. That he's constantly just waiting for you to trip up so he can bring down the hammer. Whenever you meet a trial in your life, you say, oh, here we go again. Here we go again. God just has it out for me. I'm afraid. What is God going to do next to me? Do you ever feel like that, brothers and sisters? Do you ever feel the spirit of slavery leading to fear again? Well, if you ever experience this kind of fear, then first, I encourage you 
to get your doctrine of justification deeply rooted. After all, that's how this chapter starts. Paul starts in Romans 8.1 by saying, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brethren, get the gospel deeply rooted. Get justification deeply rooted. Get it deeply rooted that you will never face God's wrath. You will never face condemnation. Get it deeply rooted that there is no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh Christian, oh believer, oh those who are in Christ Jesus, thou shalt not fear the wrath of Almighty God. But brethren, don't stop at justification because God doesn't stop at justification. God moves a step further than justification. He goes above and beyond that. God adopts us into his family. Verse 15 says, we have received the spirit of adoption. And here I believe the NASB should have capitalized the word spirit in verse 15 as the ESV does. Because I believe this verse is referring to the Holy Spirit. And the parallel passage in Galatians 4.6 makes this clear. So your spirit of slavery has been replaced by the Holy Spirit who testifies of your adoption. And this is how the Spirit leads us to kill sin. The Holy Spirit reminds us. The Holy Spirit tells us. The Holy Spirit testifies to us that we are children of God. We have a new status. We have a new nature. We have a new family. We are adopted into the family of God. We are motivated now to kill sin, not out of fear, but out of love for God, because we want to honor our Father, because we love our Father. The Spirit leads us not out of fear, but out of love. Not by slavery, but by intimacy. Not by condemnation, but by affection. In our Christian walk, we must move beyond justification to adoption. If you only think of justification in your Christian life, you will only think of God as judge. Now, is God judge and are we plaintiff? Yes. Is God creator and are we creatures? Yes. Is God king and are we subjects? Yes. Is God master and are we slaves? Yes. But is God father and are we children? Yes. A hundred times yes. Oh, Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a child of God. Brethren, you are no longer a criminal. You are now a son or a daughter of God. Christian, if you... Don't just 
don't just relate to God as judge. We have to realize that we relate to God as Father. We have a new dimension in our relationship with God. God now cares for us as a loving Father cares for His children. J.I. Packer says this, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. The two ideas are distinct, and adoption is the more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. This is simply profound. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. As most of you know, my wife, Olivia, is a pediatrician. And she used to work as a bone marrow transplant hospitalist at a fairly well-known hospital. And so she would take care of children who were really, really, really sick. These are about as sick as you could be. Many children on the brink of death, children with cancer, sickle cell disease. Well, she was working as this bone marrow transplant hospitalist when one day she gets a page from a nurse. The nurse says, Doctor, this patient is behaving strangely. Olivia says, What do you mean strangely? The nurse responds, He's limp. Olivia says, I'll be right there. So she goes to see a seven-year-old boy, seven-year-old boy with severe sickle cell disease. He was unresponsive. He could not be aroused. He just wasn't responding at all. And when she arrived, all of a sudden, he started to have a seizure. He started seizing, at which point a code blue was called. And the family were in the room at the time. The family were Christians. The mom brought the older brother outside of the room. But dad, dad stayed in the room the whole time. And throughout the whole ordeal, his dad was talking to this young boy, this seven-year-old boy, talking to him, even though he wasn't sure if his son could hear him. He kept saying, son, son, it's okay. God is in control. God is here with us now. Son, it's okay. We're, we're all here with you now. God's going to take care of you. Son, you're just, you're just going to feel a little poke. They're trying to draw some blood from you, trying to figure out what's going on. Son, you're just going to feel a little pressure on your arm. They're, they're just trying to take your blood pressure. Son, everything's going to be okay because God is in control. We're here with you now, son. Thankfully, the boy survived the code. Brothers and sisters, do you sense the love of a father for his child? Do you sense the compassion, the closeness, the affection 
of a father for his child. Brethren, this is now how God relates to you. God is not just a cold, distant judge. God is your loving, heavenly Father. If you only see God as a stern judge waiting to zap you, then I encourage you to get a better grasp of the adopting grace of God. God now loves you as a caring father for his own child. Thirdly, God's adopted children have access to the Father. God's adopted children have access to the Father, verses 15 and 16. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The glorious truth is now that we have been declared children of God, we have access to the Father. Our access to the Father is built on two aspects. The objective truth of verse 16 and the subjective truth of verse 15. In verse 16, objectively, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit. Now in Deuteronomy 19.15, the law, the Jewish law, the law of the Old Testament, says that any legal matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Even more, Roman law required at least two witnesses for an adoption to become legal. So in Jewish law and Roman law, both laws required two witnesses. And here we have our two witnesses, the Holy Spirit and our spirit. This is a joint testimony. In the divine courtroom, in the courtroom of heaven, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But there is more in this passage than just objective legal transaction. There's also the subjective experience of our everyday life. Paul says in verse 15, the Holy Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. To cry is one of the most frequent terms used for prayer in the scripture. In the book of Psalms, the word cry is used more than 40 times to describe the psalmist praying to God. To cry out is to pray. It is to speak to God. We can now approach the throne not as a plaintiff approaching a judge, but as a child approaching a father. We can now pray to God, our Father who art in heaven. We can now pray to God, Abba, Father. The word Abba would have been shocking for a Jew to hear. No Jew would have ever called God Abba. It would have been completely unthinkable. But it was not unthinkable for Jesus, because Jesus is the Son of God. In Mark 14.36, Jesus calls out to God, Abba, Father. Brethren, we need to get in our heads that we can now call God the Father the same thing that Jesus called God the Father. We can now call God Abba. 
You can come into the presence of the holy, infinite, omnipotent God and King of the universe, the great I Am, high and lifted up, singular, majestic, and you can call Him Abba. Abba. Abba is an Aramaic term, which means Papa or Daddy. In fact, it is a term which is still used in the Middle East today. One of my friends in seminary told me the story of when he was a missionary in the Middle East, he would walk through the marketplace and he would see little children grasping onto their father's hands, crying out, Appa, Appa, Appa. This is the same word, actually, in many languages. In Mandarin, it is Papa. In Korean, it's apparently very similar. Appa. I asked my wife what it is in French, she says, very similar, Papa. Papa, Papa. In America today, you can still hear little children crying this out. Papa, 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 Papa. It's the same word in many languages. What do you think these words are? These words are the same. They are primitive words. They are infantile words. The word Abba, or Appa, is one of the first words out of the mouth of every infant, of every child, across all time, across all cultures, throughout history, across the world, right after the word Mama. It's not a term an older child would use, it's a term a baby would use. One author explains it like this. An eight-year-old Aramaic-speaking child did not speak this word. It's an infant. It's primal. It's instinctive. Why would Paul deliberately make reference to the most primal, earliest form of language? Because an eight-year-old is still calculating. An eight-year-old says, I want daddy to do this or that. I know. I'll be cute. But what infants want when they say Abba is they just want Abba. Infants want to grab the neck. Infants want to come and get close to the face. What Paul is saying is when you become a Christian, there's a kind of language toward God that you didn't have before. Without being a Christian, you can ask God for things. Without being a Christian, you can have the language of duty. I need to do this or that to be on God's side. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, there's a new kind of prayer. It's primal. It's instinctive. It's a desire just for God himself. You're just after him. You're after his face. You're after the embrace. You're after the nearness itself. The earliest language we have is the language of wonder. Now, this was illustrated for me very well when a few years ago, we had a three-year-old and an infant in the house. And sometimes when we would eat cake or candy or treats, my three-year-old would climb into my lap. She would say, Dada, can I have some more? She would really milk it, you know, cute smile and the big eyes. Don't tell me that's never happened to you. But when my six-month-old was in the infant gym, just lying on the ground, 
he would reach out for me and just say, Papa, 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 Papa. Or if you put the emphasis on the different syllable, Appa, Appa, Appa. Same word as here. Now, he wasn't saying that to get anything from me. He was just doing it for me. He wanted to be close to me. He wanted me to pick him up and hold him. He wanted the embrace. He wanted the nearness itself. And he would reach out for me and touch my face. Brothers and sisters, the point is when we cry, Abba, Father, we are using the language of intimacy. Deep down, we are seeking the embrace. We are seeking the nearness of God. We are seeking the face of God. We just want to get close to God. We want God for the sake of God. So let me ask you this, O believer. How is your prayer life different from an unbeliever? How is your prayer life different from a non-Christian? Do you pray like an unbeliever? Unbelievers can pray. If you think unbelievers don't pray, you're totally mistaken. Unbelievers pray. Unbelievers can pray all sorts of things. They can ask God for things all the time. In fact, unbelievers can ask God for a lot of good things. Protection, blessing, strength in trial, health. Unbelievers ask God for things all the time. But you know what an unbeliever does not do? An unbeliever does not pray just to be close with God. Just to be near God. Just to seek the face of God. An unbeliever is not praying just for the sake of God. For the embrace of God. For the intimacy with God. So, brothers and sisters, how is your prayer life different from an unbeliever? Do you just pray just to get God to do things for you? Just to ask God to do things for you? Are you after the gifts, but not the giver? Oh, Christians, this morning, how is your prayer life different from an unbeliever? Do you pray just to be with God, just to enjoy God, just to get close to his face? Do you still have the language of wonder? Well, fourth and last Trinitarian benefit of adoption is God's adopted children are heirs with the Son. Heirs with the Son, verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this verse points to an aspect of our adoption that is still yet future. Paul says that we are heirs of God. An heir is someone who owns and waits for an inheritance. And as children of God, we are heirs of the kingdom and all the treasures in heaven, all the wealth, all the glory, all the joy, and all of God himself. He is our portion and our inheritance forever. And Paul goes on to say that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8.29 calls Christ the firstborn among many brethren. When God adopted us into his family, 
we became brothers with the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ. At the moment of adoption, we became adopted brothers with Jesus and co-heirs with Christ. Just as one day, just as Jesus owns everything, one day you too will own everything. But there is a caveat. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Oh, fellow Christians, we are called to suffer and rejoice. We are called to suffer with Christ and be glorified with Christ. And oh, for that precious word, with. With Christ. With him. This speaks of the great doctrine of union with Christ. When God adopted us into his family, Christ became our brother, not just in the best of times, but in the worst of times. Christ is our brother, not just in glory, but in suffering. Matt Chandler tells the following story, which serves to illustrate this precious doctrine of union with Christ. It was late in the summer of 1977, and Romania was under communist rule, when a Baptist minister put all of his worldly concerns in order after the manner of a dying man. He was preparing for martyrdom. Joseph's son was arrested and imprisoned several times in Romania during the 1970s and charged with being a Christian minister. Each time, He underwent several weeks of intense interrogation, beatings, torture, and mind games before finally being exiled from the country in 1981. In his book, A Theology of Martyrdom, San wrote about what kept him going through those years of suffering. San said, This union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only had the honor to share his sufferings. Oh, for that incredible word, with. We are suffering with Christ. We are in union with Christ. So believers, keep on rejoicing because your suffering is evidence of your union with Christ. 1 Peter 4.13 says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Your sufferings are not merely your own. They are also Christ's. But Christian, you must also know that your suffering is not meant for your harm. The purpose, the goal, the end of your suffering is so that, in order that, we may also be glorified with him. Back to Joseph Son. At one point during his ministry, Son was to meet an officer from the secret police in the restaurant of a Romanian hotel. The communist officer had committed to silencing San's ministry by offering him a secular job in exchange for a promise that he never again preach the gospel. Turning down the job spelled at least hard time in a prison camp. 
It might very well mean execution. Saan met with the man and without flinching, turned down the job. Saan says, when the secret police officer threatened to kill me, to shoot me, I smiled and I said, sir, don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory? You cannot threaten me with glory. Suffering precedes glory. Glory follows suffering. The order cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. This was true for Christ and it will be true for us. Christ himself states in Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Affliction, then victory. Suffering, then glory. Scripture connects the two together. They are inseparable. Listen closely to John Calvin. Listen closely. There is to be understood a twofold truth in these words that Christians must suffer many troubles before they enjoy glory and that afflictions are not evils because they have glory annexed to them. Take heart, brothers and sisters, Because following our suffering in this life comes glory. Glory is connected to our suffering. Right now, Christ is our brother in suffering, but one day Christ will be our brother in glory. And we owe it all to him who gave his life for us. In his book, Each for the Other, Marriage as It's Meant to Be, Brian Chappell writes about two brothers who decided one day to play on the sandbanks on the edge of the river in his hometown. Chapel writes, Because our town depends on the river for commerce, dredges, which are huge machines, regularly clear its channels of sand and deposit it in great mounds beside the river. Nothing is more fun for children than playing on these mountainous sand piles, and few things are more dangerous. While the sand is still wet from the river's bottom, the dredges dump it on the shore. The piles of sand dry with rigid crusts that often conceal cavernous internal voids formed by the escaping water. If a child climbs on a mound of sand that has such a hidden void, the external surface easily collapses. Sand from higher on the mound then rushes into the void, trapping the child in the sinkhole of loose sand. This is exactly what happened to the two brothers as they raced up one of the larger mounds. When the boys did not return home for dinner, the family and neighbors organized a search. They found the younger brother. Only his head and shoulders protruded from the mound. He was unconscious from the presence of the sand on his body. Searchers began digging frantically. When they cleared the sand to his waist, he aroused to consciousness. Where is your brother? The rescuer shouted. The child replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. With the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother lifted the younger to safety. Brethren, this passage reminds us of whose shoulders we stand upon 
We stand upon the shoulders of our brother, Jesus Christ, the Savior, who at the sacrifice of his own life lifted us to safety. It was his shoulders that bore our sin. It was his shoulders that bore the wrath of God for us. If you're not a believer here this morning, I hate to break it to you, but the Bible says that you are not a child of God. You are not a brother of Christ. One day, you will come before God, not as father, but before God as judge. And you will be forced to bear the full weight of the wrath of God against your sin on your own shoulders. Oh, unbeliever, I urge you, repent today. Cast your sins upon the shoulders of Jesus. Believe in him and be given the right to be called a child of God. Let us pray. Abba, Father, thank you. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for the vast adopting love that you have bestowed upon us who are so undeserving. Lord, we honor you. We love you. We devote ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.